This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the first letter of Peter. We'll be looking at the first part of chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses tonight of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word this evening that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would work this hope in us of which you speak in your word, the hope that only comes in you, that comes through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and is applied in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and so that in the year to come we might live lives according to this hope and always ready to give a reason for the hope in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we will just a matter of hours from now end the year 2023 and enter the year 2024, it is always a development that causes us to reflect on what's behind and consider what's to come. Of course, we look around us, we look at the world, we look at so many things that have been going on and will be continuing to go on and will be coming up in the coming year. There's a lot of things that are kind of uncertain, kind of scary, pose potential difficulties and issues for us as Christians in an ever more hostile world. You probably uh, have things that come to mind in that effect. We are living in a world that is increasingly unstable, chaotic, and there just seems to be more and more immorality and rebellion against God everywhere we look. We see sins that were unspeakable and inconceivable just a generation ago, not only widely practiced, but celebrated and demanded and regarded as the highest values and human rights of our culture. We see more and more corruption that's exposed all the time at every level of society. You know, the economy, who knows what it's going to do. We have another election year coming up. The world is just crazy, and it seems to get crazier all the time. Now, if you spend too much time and effort thinking about those things, it will drive you crazy. Or if not crazy, at least into possible despair and desperation and depression. We may have hard times. Times may get a lot harder before they get better, and there may not be much worldly relief in sight. Thankfully, God's word stands forever, and it is not silent or indifferent to people whose hope might be waning in the face of opposition and persecution and suffering and chaos. In fact, Peter wrote two letters to a church very much in that sort of a situation. For the church at that time, things were hard, and they were going to get harder. But Peter wrote to them to give them hope and to instruct them how they ought to live in light of that hope. And so I thought tonight, as we prepare to close out the year, I'd look at this opening passage of 1 Peter, because it clearly lays out the hope that we have and why we should have it. It's a hope not in the things of this world, because the things of this world are crazy and getting crazier. It's a hope firmly grounded in Jesus Christ and the salvation we have in him. So I want us to look at this passage tonight in three points. First, the ground of our hope, verses 1 and 2. Why do we or why should we have hope? And then second, the goal of our hope, in verses 3 through 9. What is this hope going to do for us? Where is it going to take us? And third, the glory of our hope, in verses 10 through 12. How do we respond to this hope? So the ground, goal, and glory of our hope. These are our points for this evening. First, we'll look at the ground of our hope in verses 1 and 2. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the churches of the dispersion. 
This would be the Jews that had been in various times and ways displaced by foreign invaders, had gone out into the broader world. And he writes this particularly to the churches among the dispersion in Galatia. He lists a bunch of different cities, a bunch of different churches, a bunch of different places in Asia Minor that would have all been recipients of this letter. This would have been a letter circulated to all of them. He would have written this about 30 years after the time of Jesus. Now you might notice that the first word that Peter uses to describe these believers in the dispersion in Galatia after identifying them by their geography is elect. Now, what does it mean that they are elect, these members of these churches in troubled places and times? Well, the first thing that Peter wants to emphasize about this election is its Trinitarian character, its origin, its source in the triune God. We see at the beginning of verse 2 that this election is according to is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But foreknowledge can often be a misunderstood word. Critics of Reformed theology and of predestination like to say that foreknowledge just means knowing something beforehand, that God just knew what his free creatures were going to do. He doesn't actually determine it for them. Is that what's going on? No. God's foreknowledge is action. God foreknowing is determinative. Paul describes the grace of election in Ephesians 1.4 as God having chosen us in him, that is Christ, from the foundation of the world. Paul goes on there to describe God as having predestined us to adoption as sons. So it's not God having looked down the corridors of time at what his completely free and autonomous creatures were going to do. No, God chose. God elected. God, by grace, selected particular people to be his saints and be his church. And that included these dispersion pilgrims in Galatia. So if you are in Christ tonight... It is because God the Father in eternity past chose you, chose particularly you, to be his very own. This would be a comforting fact to Peter's audience, and it is comforting to us. We are the particular chosen elect people of God. God the Father himself knows us and chose us. In verse 2, continuing this Trinitarian course, we also see the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is sanctification. As God's people, we are set apart and we are made holy by the power and working of the Spirit. We are holy as we are justified by faith and the guilt of our sins is removed. But also more and more in this life, we are conformed to the image of Christ. Our wills and desires are renewed. We learn to love God's will and God's law and put it into practice by the Spirit's work in us. We more and more put our sins to death. We are not perfected in this life, but more and more and truly throughout our lives, God makes us holy. 
And finally, we see at the end of verse 2, the rounding out of this Trinitarian work and the sprinkling of Christ's blood. We see that the purposes of this election are twofold as it relates to the Son. There is obedience and there is the sprinkling of blood. This obedience to Christ is the product of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit mentioned previously. As the Spirit makes us holy and continues to conform us into the image of Christ, we are obedient to Christ. But also, and very importantly, we see here the sprinkling of Christ's blood. This is the work of Christ in the atonement, the work he has done to cleanse us from our sins. This is Christ's blood and righteousness in our justification, turning away the wrath of God that we were due because of sin, taking away the guilt of our sin. When we are united to Christ, all of these benefits of justification and sanctification are ours. So what we see in Peter's opening here is that our hope, even in troubled times, is first and foremost grounded in the work of God done for us in the gospel. It is the fountain. It is the source of our hope. And this hope is taking us somewhere. That brings us to our second point. After the ground of our hope, we come to the goal of our hope in verses 3 through 9. So God the Father elects us, the Spirit sanctifies us, the Son shed His blood for us, but to what ends? We have the what, but what is the so what? Well, Peter continues in verse 3, and it seems at this point he breaks into a doxology. He starts giving praise to God. And what does he praise God for? Well, first, and quite importantly, Peter praises God that we have been caused to be born again, to be begotten again. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet in light of the gospel glories of the first section, we are alive. We have been reborn. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that means that he is the Lord over life and death. So if he says that we have new life, that we have been born again, we ought to believe that. But it's not just new life now. Jesus is described elsewhere in Scripture as the first fruits of our resurrection. Because of Christ's resurrection, we can have confidence of a bodily resurrection of our own after we die. That will certainly provide some hope, won't it? Then in verse 4, we learn more about this eternal resurrection hope. We have an inheritance for us in heaven. Now, who gets an inheritance? Well, in this world, it's usually children. Embedded in the fact that we receive inheritance in Christ is the fact that we are heirs and we are children of God. So we have the benefits of justification and sanctification in our salvation that we've already talked about. But we also have adoption. We have a Father in heaven. We have an elder brother, Jesus Christ, who became like us in all ways except for sin. He is our advocate before the Father. We have brothers and sisters in the church. 
So in Christ, we don't just get new life, we get a new family, a new people to whom we belong. In Peter's day, many who came to Christ would have had to forsake family. Families would often shun those who would leave the family religion, whether it was Judaism or paganism or whatever else it might have been. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe your family or members of your family have rejected you because of Christ. Maybe you don't know or don't have an earthly family. But in Christ, you are adopted by the Father and you have a new family. Besides the new family status, verse 4 also tells us about this inheritance itself. It is imperishable. It is incorruptible. It never goes bad. It never expires. See, everything we have in this world, or everything we could even want in this world, will eventually wither, rust, fade, and die. But in Christ, we are promised an inheritance that lasts forever. And it is pure, it is undefiled, it is not corrupted in any way by the fall and by sin. And it is kept for us in a safe place. Not some vault or safe in the back of a bank somewhere. It's kept for us in heaven. So even if we lose everything in this world and in this life, we have a hope of an inheritance in the life to come. But verse 5 tells us that not only is our inheritance kept safe for the life to come, but so are we. We are kept by God's perfect and unfailing power for salvation. So if we suffer as these believers in Peter's time did, it is only temporary. Though we may suffer and though we will assuredly die, yet we shall live. The knowledge of this eternal life and inheritance produces results in us. First, it produces rejoicing even in the face of trials. You see this in the beginning of verse 6. And we can hear the stories of the martyrs of old who would go to the grave, would go to the cross, would go to the lions, rejoicing at the hope that was theirs in Christ. In the Bible, we remember Paul and Silas praising the Lord in song while they were in prison. In the church in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, of which Peter was a part, when they faced persecution and rejection for their faith from the civil authorities, they did not panic or despair or retreat. No, they rejoiced that they had been found worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, this is not a natural response to us. As humans, when we face difficulties, our natural response is to make the difficulties go away. We have doctors and medications and products and quick fixes for just about everything, it seems. We like ease and comfort, and when suffering arises, our instinct is to try to undo the, the suffering and return to ease and comfort as fast as we can. But this Christian hope that Peter is describing here causes us to have a different sort of understanding and a different sort of reaction to things. 
As Christians, we can learn to even rejoice in suffering. We can learn of greater purposes and power in our suffering. Verse 7 tells us this is part of the testing and refinement of our faith. Just as gold is tested and refined and purified by fire, it is part of why gold is valuable. It lasts a long time, even under harsh circumstances. That's why when things are going bad in the economy, you always see and hear those ads and recommendations. Now is the time to buy gold. Of course, even the gold in this world isn't going to last forever. It, too, will tarnish and warp and decay, and one day with this world, it will melt away. But this gift of faith we are given in Christ will never perish. It is secure and it is permanent, just as our lives and our inheritance are permanent and kept in heaven forever. And this hope can be contagious. What kind of witness, what kind of testimony is it for Christians to live this way, to show a world that we can have joy, that we can rejoice even in the darkest of times and facing the deepest of trials? It's a powerful thing. It makes the world pay attention. And these trials and testings our faith receives in this life are not in vain. They serve a greater purpose. At the end, our faith will be vindicated and validated to the praise and glory and honor of the Lord at his coming. As Christ's people who are kept and who persevere to the end, we will receive that commendation of well done, good and faithful servants. All the things we have suffered these few decades we roam this earth, they'll seem meaningless and insignificant by comparison because we will know Christ in his glory. So Peter wants the church, as it faces trials, to be firmly focused on the hope in Christ. It's what will give them strength in their darkest days to endure the trials of this present evil age. Verses 8 and 9 tell us this hope and this rejoicing has an object, and that is Christ. Though Christians do not see Christ at the present time, they love him. I've never seen Christ, and neither have you. Now, Peter, who wrote this, did see Christ. He walked with him for a few years on the earth, heard his voice, saw his face, learned his teachings, ate meals, shared life with Jesus Christ. And yet, even as someone who had this experience, Peter does not want those who did not see Christ in the flesh to think that their love for or hope in Christ was anything less real or less powerful than his own. Though there is a real sense in which Christ is absent, having ascended into heaven from which he will return, there is a sense in which he is here with us. He is here with us through his word, through the Holy Spirit, the helper that he promised. He's here in the sacraments in which we partake of him, as we just did this morning. The Lord's Supper was given to us so that by our senses we might taste and see Christ as he offered himself for us and to us. And there will come a day when our faith will be sight. Verse 9 reinforces this hope. 
It terminates in the salvation of our souls. Where Christ has gone, we will be. And so even if we suffer as Christ suffered, our faith and our hope are not in vain. That's good news. That's very good news. And it brings us to our last point. After the ground and the goal of our hope, we turn to the glory of our hope in verses 10 through 12. So Peter, having established that salvation is the goal and end of our faith, he reflects in verses 10 through 12 on this salvation, what it means in the history of redemption. How great is this salvation? Well, Peter describes two sets of figures that have very glorious and personal and intimate knowledge of the things of God, the prophets and the angels. So consider the prophets of old, as Peter does in verse 10 through the first part of verse 12. Just think, for example, of Moses, who saw all the great plagues, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, He went up on the mountain, he received the law. God himself came to him and spoke to him. The glory of the Lord passed by him. Consider all the other great signs that Moses saw in the wilderness. Or think of Elijah, who saw the glory of the Lord come down in the fire on Mount Carmel, shaming the prophets of Baal. Think of Elisha who did miracles and raised up the dead. Think of Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up in the glory of his heavenly temple. Or think of Ezekiel, who saw the temple greater than any on earth. All the other Old Testament prophets, all the great and glorious things they saw and testified to in the Scriptures. What was all that about? Some of it was about things that were to come in their days and did come in their days, but ultimately it all pointed somewhere greater. It was not for themselves that they prophesied. It was all pointing to the glory of God that was to be revealed in Christ. The people of old knowing and seeing and hearing and partaking of Christ by the types and shadows. Maybe some in Peter's day were doing as many do now. They're hoping for some great further prophetic revelation or they're hoping for signs and wonders and visions. And maybe if God would just come and show himself in these ways, then we could be strong enough. Then our faith would be confirmed and our hope would be sufficiently grounded. But Peter is saying that the faith and hope we have in Christ, even having never seen him, is not only greater than everything that the prophets ever saw or said or did, it's the very reason for everything the prophets saw and said and did. They hoped for, they longed to see Christ. We're seeing what they saw, not only for the sake of their present time, but for us. We can now look back and see God's promises unfolding and fulfilled in Christ. We can see that all of history before pointed to Christ and all history after points back to him. 
Christ is the high point of all history and all revelation. The prophets and the saints of old, they only saw him in their types and shadows, but we have the fullness of revelation by his word and spirit. Not only did the prophets long to see the revelation of God's salvation in Christ, so did the angels, as we see at the end of verse 12. Think about this. Angels are perfect, sinless beings. They have always known the fellowship and presence of God. And yet the glory of Christ and the hope in Christ far surpasses even what they have and see. They long to see what we see and know what we know. We have a better knowledge and faith and hope in God than theirs. We have the faith and the hope of the redeemed in Christ. So, what we have in these first 12 verses of 1 Peter is Christian hope. This hope is permanently and irrevocably rooted in the greatest of all realities in heaven and earth, now and forever, our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope gives us joy in dark days. We are in many ways looking at dark days, or at least the possibility of dark days. But this hope also demands to be heard. Peter elsewhere exhorts believers to be ready to give a reason for the hope they have. Hope that the world without Christ does not have. They, don't, they can't understand it. They don't have it on their own, but we have it, and we can take it to them so that others might believe and be saved. So the question that remains is this. Do you have this hope? Have you heard, have you received this gospel hope? Have you received and do you rest on Jesus as he is offered in the gospel? You have the hope of the people that are chosen by the Father, washed clean by the blood of the Son, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit and awaiting the resurrection glory to those who would repent of their sins and believe in Christ, this hope is freely given. Perhaps you are in Christ tonight, but you, like so many, are weak. You're facing the trials and troubles of this life just as the church of Peter's day was, and you're unsure if your faith is enough. This word of God through Peter is for you today. Cling to the hope of your salvation. Know that this great salvation is yours, that your hope and your life and your inheritance is secure forever. You do not need to fear. You do not need to despair. Like the saints of old, you can even learn to rejoice in suffering, knowing that this is but a very temporary test of your faith and that you will be vindicated and confirmed at the last day. God will not leave you or forget you. He will finish the work he has begun in you. So rest in Christ, trust in Christ, and hope in Christ, knowing that he and all that is his is yours.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this hope that we have in the gospel, this hope that is above and beyond and transcends all the things that the world has to offer. We know that this life may in many ways be difficult, that it may test us, it may try us, it even may harm and destroy us as far as the body goes. Um, We can have the hope and confidence that our lives are hidden with you, that we have this eternal life and eternal inheritance in Christ. I pray that you would write this hope on our hearts, that all here gathered tonight would have and believe in this hope, and that we would take this hope where it has not been heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.